You know, it's been said that the worst of times bring out the best in us. And I think that's true because often we see that heroes spring out of desperate times, that spiritual giants are revealed in the darkest of days. Spiritual giants and heroes are are men and women who move from a position of trouble to triumph when trouble seems the most pronounced. And in case you haven't noticed, we're living in troubled days. God has some help for us this morning, I believe, in Psalm 63. I love the Psalms, and I'm going to do Psalm 63 today and Psalm 84 next weekend. They both go in the same vein. They're both looking at how to get through hard times victoriously with joy and confidence. And so I'd like for us to read Psalm 63 together. I have it on overhead for you too as well. In the beginning, it's a, the title of it is a Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. He was in a desert. He says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glorify in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. It's helpful to understand the background a little bit. David was in a place of trouble. He was being pursued. He found himself in the the desert on the run. I mean, this is the king. Most likely, David had fled Jerusalem because his own son Absalom had staged a coup, basically. He saw that his father's leadership and the loyalty of some of the people in Jerusalem uh, were drifting away from from David, and so uh, Absalom was trying to kill him and to, to take authority that his father had. And, you know, I can do things way better than Dad. I'll lead. And David was fleeing that. I'm sure he was wondering what was happening, probably in some state of disbelief over the turn his life had taken from being the king in the palace to being the king on the run in the desert. And at best, that time had to be a time of introspection coupled with disappointment and uncertainty. Now, we, of course, don't know all that David was going through 
But I think it's okay to meld what was going on politically that we can glean from the Scriptures and use some sanctified imagination to fill in some of the blanks as to how David was feeling and how he was coping. Absalom, like I had mentioned, had quietly rallied the people to his side. And David could have stayed and fought it. He had some mighty men by his side who would have given everything for King David. But David didn't have the stomach to take up arms against his own son. Fight against, you know, that has to be one of the most devastating things that could happen is to have your son trying to kill you. I've got a son who loves me, so I, I don't know what that's like. I had a brother who was a meth addict, and, and I shared the gospel with him, uh, and he threatened to kill me, and he really meant it. He said, if you ever say that again, if, you ever, if I ever see you here again, I'm going to kill you. That's my own brother, I, so I know what that felt like. Well, eventually, the hound of heaven found him. He got saved, and his life did a dramatic turn, and he has, he's in heaven now, but he has a great deal of fruit to bear for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for just a glimpse, I remember what I felt like when someone I loved and cared for threatened to kill me. That's where David was. And sometimes things happen in our lives that devastate us inside and out, and all of the fight leaves us. Now, David, there are Israel, enemies of Israel coming. Are you going to fight against them? Anytime. But fight against my own family, against people who have been dear to me? David said, never. He was knocked down, but he wasn't knocked out. He was rocked by the events going on around him, but it was going to take more than Absalom, his son, and Amasa, his nephew, and Ahithophel, his trusted counselor, and all the troops that they'd gathered. It was going to take more than that to knock David out because David's life was hid in God, and they would have to knock out God first, and that's the setting of this psalm. It reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. In the Phillips translation, it says, We are hard-pressed on all sides, but we are never frustrated. We are puzzled, but never in despair. We are persecuted, but are never deserted. We may be knocked down, but we are never knocked out. Now, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, each one of us has faced this kind of situation, one form or another in our life. Each one of us has something that has chased us or someone that is chasing us or some, something that's trying to overtake us and swallow us up in our thinking, in our mind, in our emotions. Each one of us has or will have those things in our life that will keep us awake during the night watches, uh, worrying about it, wondering about it, magnifying it in the dark. We all have troubling things in our lives, every one of us. And it's not a commentary on the kind of person you are. Rather, it's simply the result of living in a sin-darkened world and having to deal with that. A child is troubling you. You're in a financial dilemma. You don't see any daylight. You have deadlines that are 
frustrating and burying you. You have expectations that aren't being met from other people and promotions that aren't happening at work. You have disappointments. You have disease. Someone you know has betrayed you. All these things can create a sense of trouble in your life. The government can be falling apart. The nation we live in seems to be disintegrating before us. That can be troubling you. It's instructive, though, how David handled his trouble. When, when he was in the desert, he didn't look back. He didn't look around trying to figure out why this was going on. He looked up, and he reaffirmed his faith and love for the Lord Jesus. So here in Psalm 63, we find David moving from a place of trouble to triumph. And, and he's, he's coming, and the trouble that hit him is from an unexpected source, almost blindsided him. And yet he's moving from a place of trouble to triumph. How did he do that? How does that take place? And that same thing can take place in your life and in my life if we would do what David did. So I think we can draw a lot from this psalm concerning the days that we live in. We can, uh, a lot of things beyond our control are troubling us. How do we move from trouble to triumph? Well, number one, like David did, recall your relationship with God. Recall your relationship with with God. And he did that by engaging God in the midst of trouble, in the midst of your trouble. If you got trouble, don't engage your trouble. Engage your God. That is the key. Engage your God. He says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Now, I would have probably been whining Oh, God, why are you letting my son do this? This breaks my heart. It's not right. Everything that I wanted for life and everything is is going wrong. But that's not what he did. He said, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, earnestly, fervently, I seek you. With my whole being, it says in that verse. Our whole being, that's our our spirit, our soul, our mind, our flesh. Everything in me is thirsting for God. Everything about me is thirsting for God. Now, I have a a great love for ice cream. I've been reduced to ice cream rations in our home. I get some now once a week, whether I want it or not. I used to have it once a night. But I'm getting this skinny physique, and I'm liking it. There's some trade-offs that are really good. And, and I used to just crave ice cream, but now I don't. But I don't want my craving for God to ever diminish. I want to thirst for Him, hunger for Him, have my spirit and my soul and my flesh desire Him more than anything else. And that's so important in these troubling days. As a Christian, if we find ourselves in a desert situation in a time of trouble and everything in us is not crying out for God, something is desperately wrong. We should be thirsty for God when we're in the desert. In Psalm 41, 1, it says, As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. 
My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? He was thirsty for God. The desert is often the place where Bible characters encountered God. You can think of a lot of them who were in the desert when God spoke to them, encouraged them, directed them. Uh, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, David, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Jesus, Paul, and maybe even John. The Isle of Patmos was probably a fairly desert wilderness situation. And look what God did with John. When we're in a desert situation, I think we should be encouraged to know that God is waiting for us there. You know, God doesn't have to hunt you down in the desert. He knows where you're headed, and he's waiting for you right there. He's waiting to speak. He's waiting to satisfy your thirst for him. The more difficult life is and the more severe temptations we face, the more we realize just how much we need God. As troubles increase, our need for God increases. And so trouble is often a tender mercy from God in order to draw us into a deeper relationship with him. Trouble is not a punishment. I think if we can turn that around, we tend to think trouble is punishment. What have I done wrong, God? Instead, trouble is God's invitation to draw you into deeper fellowship with him and so that he can speak to you clearly when your whole focus is put on him. When we're at our weakest and our most vulnerable, God's power takes on added significance for us. It's not a bad thing to be so helpless that we need God, folks. It's not a bad thing at all. B, encourage your heart with what you already know about God. With what you already know about God. David said, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. The word seen means uh, seen with the eyes of the mind. Seen with the eyes of the mind. I liked how Dr. Bain explained to us last weekend how we see things and that there's a filter uh, with which our brain processes what we see. And he encourages us to have a, a, a Word of God filter there in place so that we can see from God's perspective what's going on. And, and when we're in desperate times and we feel totally helpless, that filter really needs to be a God-centered filter. And that's, that's, is that we so passionately want God during those troubled times that we see him in ways that we would never see him before. When trouble is its darkest and trouble is its most pressing and the answers are the most fleeting, God becomes clear. Trouble often works like night vision goggles, which allow us to see God in dark times. David's passionate longing for God was intensified, I think, because of a past encounter with God. He said, I've seen you in the sanctuary. It it seems like someplace back in Jerusalem in the sanctuary, David had had a meeting or an encounter with God that was something he would never forget. I have, and he was recalling that, and he was remembering that, and he was encouraging his heart with what he already knew about God. Sometimes we have to rely on what God has taught us in the past about himself. I don't know what that experience was, but it deeply impacted David. 
I don't know, it might have been similar to, to Isaiah's uh, vision in Isaiah 6 where he said, I've seen, I saw the Lord in the king, year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the robe of his temple, his robe filled the temple. His glory was amazing. The pillars shook in his presence. And, and so it might have been that kind of vision that just gave David a view of the glory and the majesty of God. It was a high view of God leading to a deeper knowledge of God. And what I want to present to you today and next Sunday are, is a high view of God. We can never have too high of a view of our Savior. The higher we think of God, the, the more we will see him in times of trouble. Now, he says, I have seen you in the sanctuary. We want to encourage our hearts with what we already know about God. It's very instructive to us, too, that David, King David, saw this vision of God, and he had this impact in his soul before his enemies started chasing him. If we wait, if we wait, it can be hard to get a vision of God. You and I already know enough about God. If you've been attending church here for more than a week, you know enough about God to sustain you through troubling times because all of you have heard that he is our source of strength. He is our redeemer. He is the one who's prepared our future for us. So we need to let our mind and our heart feed on the truth that we already possess. We very seldom need new truth. We just need to recall what we already know about God. Now, this next one on the slide, it's not on your note sheet, but and, and I don't have anybody to blame because I prepared them and handed them in and said, print this. So it's my fault. Uh, but often, often we have to rely on what we know about God, not on what we feel. We often have to rely on what we know about God, not on what we feel. You know, feelings, emotions are neither right or wrong. It's how we act on those feelings and emotions that, that becomes right or wrong. And I know Pastor D has taught this. We taught our kids this growing up. Uh, you don't have to act the way you feel. You can smile on the outside when you're not smiling on the inside. You don't have to act the way you feel. And so we, the same way when we're in trouble, we need to rely on what we know about our Savior not on what we feel. Oh, but God, this can't be true because I feel rotten. It is true. It is true. So in the face of trouble, we can see that David's next response is number two, to respond with worship. Worship when you're in trouble. Psalm 63.3 says, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. The psalmist was right with God. He knew that the love, because your love, that's the, the Hebrew word hesed. I can't even say it right because you got to kind of hack a loogie to get it. Chesed. That's how it goes. And, and you know, you got to just understand that that hesed, his loyal love is the deepest kind of love. 
His unfailing mercy, his love that is eternal for you is what David thought about. And so when you're in times of trouble, you need to think on that loyal love of the Savior. And the description, it's a, uh, the description of God's thoughts and actions toward us is so amazing throughout Scripture. Uh, it doesn't even compare to what we might consider the most precious on this earth. It's better than our highest reality. It's better than our highest enjoyment. It's better, uh, God's loving kindness is better than food and better than ice cream, better than peace, better than comfort. Those things that we always seek, better than travel. The next trip you have planned is probably going to be great, but it's not going to be better than God's loyal love, better than sports, better than marriage. Better than nature, better than adventure. I stepped on some holy ground last night with Dee and said it's even better than fishing. It's better than every good thing we enjoy on this earth because his loyal love is never failing. Does that encourage your hearts? He loves you with an unfailing love. And no situation you're in, no trouble you're facing, nothing that will come your way in the future can separate you from that love. You see, being right with God raises the bar of our expectations because we're counting on Him to act according, toward us according to His loyal love. Psalm 63, 4 says, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. You see, David was going to be satisfied his whole life long praising God. Worship teaches us to be satisfied in the one who loves us most. In verse 5, he says, I will be fully satisfied as if with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. You know, David had made a commitment to be satisfied in singing even while he was on the run. And even though David was running toward trouble, or running from trouble, he was actually running toward God. I, I, I don't think we ever have to focus so much on running from trouble as we do running hard Toward God, following hard after God. Can we be satisfied if people are chasing us? Yes. Can we be satisfied if rumors and falsehoods are barking at our heels? I hate rumors and lies, and I've had them barking at my heels before, but I can be satisfied in Jesus. Can we be in a place of triumph? Even though we're up to our armpits in trouble? I remember Chuck Swindoll about 30 years ago said, it's hard to re- when you're up to your armpits in alligators, it's hard to remember that your main objective was to drain the swamp. And sometimes we get up to our pits in alligators, but our main objective is to focus on the Savior. And we can't allow all those things to rob us of that focus. I read an account last week of a Christian woman in China named Sister Tong. She hosted an unregistered church in her home. As a result, she was arrested and she was sent to prison for six months so that her captors could re-educate her through torture and beatings and brainwashing. When she was released, she was asked how her time in prison was, and her response was, oh yes, that was a wonderful time. Her friends couldn't believe her response. 
So she explained that prison was wonderful, not because of the beatings and the abuse and everything she suffered there, but it it was wonderful because God had been there with her in a very special way that offset all of that. It was like he paid extra attention to her during that time. And her heart was warmed daily with his presence in her life, and she described it as a wonderful time. I don't know what trouble you're going through today. I don't know what you're facing. But if you're having fellowship with God in the way he's designed it, you're having a wonderful time. Trouble certainly demands our attention, but it need not deter our affection for God. Trouble cries out loud, just like folly crying out loud in the streets. You know, wisdom cries out, but folly tries to duplicate it and cries out In opposition to it, trouble cries out and tries to rob us from our affection of Christ, but it can't deter that. Number three, recount your blessings. Verse six, on my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the nights. David's sitting there thinking, wow, God has done this and done this and done this and all of that. Now, sleepless nights and tossing and turning filled with anxiety and fear, who among us doesn't have those? Who doesn't? But David put his sleepless nights to different use. He sings to God. He redirects his mind thinking to think about God's love, think about God's goodness, and perhaps above all in this situation about God's protection. In Psalm 119, 148, David says, My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. Through the watches of the night. David was a soldier as well as a king. David was in that desert. They were on the run. They probably took three-hour watches. This may have been referring to David's three-hour watch at night. I don't know. But he says, On my bed. On my bed. This could have been anything, but I think it's wherever he laid his head. In the watches of the night, if he was troubled, whether it's in the desert or in the palace, he thought about God. Now, I do that at night. I've trained myself. When I wake up troubled over something or anxious over something, I've worked on quoting Scripture and memorizing things. I've purposed to not sing so I don't wake my wife up. But I do hum in my spirit, thinking of verses and songs and different things that are going on. So I want to encourage you that wherever you lie down... You can move from trouble to triumph. You can move from trouble to triumph if you remember God on your bed at night. If you're like me, the things I think about at night can be way bigger or way more scary in the dark. Darkness has a way of magnifying our fears. When morning comes, the magnitude of the problem seems to get back to normal. I I always long for morning when I'm having those kind of nights. But since I've learned to quote Scripture and praise God and thank Him for what He's done, I usually just go back to sleep like a baby. My wife will tell you babies don't snore like I do, but I still go back to sleep. David had a fire that burned in him, even through the night, folks. Nighttime and darkness in the Bible are often equated or described as times of oppression or depression or discouragement or trouble. And it, It's a time when things aren't quite as clear as they might be. Job wrote that in Job 7, 4. He says, when I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on and I toss and turn until dawn. 
One of the best places to recount your blessings is on your bed. Because it's not easy for our fears to overtake us at night. If we spend time recounting God's blessings before we go to sleep and even if we wake up in the middle of the night. I move to a position of triumph out of trouble when I remember God in the night watches. If I go to sleep worrying about the government or inflation or all of the perversion that's infiltrating our culture or the future of my Oregon State Beavers in the realignment process, I won't triumph that night. I'll remain troubled by oversized problems that only grow bigger in the dark. The key words are, remember God. When you start to get troubled and your mind starts to buzz like a hive of yellow jackets, like a nest of yellow jackets in the ground, it starts to turmoil, remember God. Remember God. Training our hearts to spend sleepless nights in praise and fellowship will be one of the best things you could ever do. Number four, reassure yourselves of God's promised protection. Of God's promised protection. There are three ways we do this. Letter A, by singing songs about battle and blessing. David says, because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. As long as I'm under God, like we said earlier, they have to knock God out to get to me. As long as I'm under God, I'm able to be safe and overshadowed and encircled by God. Staying close enough to him to feel his presence, as close as a baby chick does to the wings of its mother. In Psalm 91.4, says, He will cover you with his feathers. We all know this verse. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. So I sing songs of battle and blessing. Catherine Scott sings a song, and the chorus goes like this. You make me sing on the battlefield. You make me dance through these tears. You grace my heart to believe again. You make me sing on the battlefield. That's a gift of God to allow us to sing in times of trouble. When you're afraid, folks, sing. When you're troubled, sing. It doesn't have to be something you could stand up here and do. It's just sing. Let your spirit soar. Isabel Kuhn referred to God's protection like that as the feather curtain of God. She says, the feather curtain of God falls silently. It's soft and comforting to the sheltered one, but intangible, mysterious, and baffling to the outsider. The Bible talks about that feather curtain with surprising frequency. In Psalm 17, 8, it says, keep me as the apple of your eye, Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Matthew 23, Jesus uses the same uh, imagery. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. You were not willing. We can sing. Because we're confidently protected by God in any situation. Letter B, by remembering the strong grip God has on you. David says, I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. The right hand of God is strong. When he's got a hold on you, it's unbreakable. And that's our only option is to cling to God in times of trouble. There is no plan B. 
If we have to rely on ourselves, we're going to botch it pretty bad. No plan B. You see, God delights in being our only hope. That word cling means to follow hard or closely behind you. I I found an interesting thing that, you remember the story when Mike preached through the book of Ruth and and Ruth's relationship with Naomi. When Naomi told her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, to to, uh, return to Moab, Scripture tells us that Orpah kissed Naomi, but Ruth clung to her. It's the same word. Ruth followed hard after Naomi. So in other words, Ruth is saying, I'm going to stick by you through thick or thin. I'm choosing you as my only option. I'm rejecting what's in the past, and I'm choosing you. And that's what Ruth's grandson David did. Oh, that we might say the same thing as well. I will cling to you because your right hand upholds me. See, by understanding the end of those who oppose God and his people, I think this is important for us because as humans, we have this great sense of justice and fairness and we don't have the mind of God often and and we think we want to see the bad guy get his just rewards. Well, I would hope, number one, that the bad guy gets saved. But if that isn't what happens, we need to understand that there is an end for them that's not good. Verse 9 Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. Verse 10, they will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. (laughs) You see, David had seen already how God deals with his enemies firsthand. He'd seen the giant Goliath dead. He'd seen many sworn enemies of God, of God's people, fall before his sword and the sword of his soldiers. He had seen God decimate the enemies even though they were had overwhelming numerical superiority and strength over David's armies. He'd witnessed the delivering hand of God. It's important for us to understand the end for those who oppose God. And that gives us some sense of compassion for them. Number five, rejoice in your future. Maybe the best thing yet. Rejoice in your future. But the king will rejoice in God. In verse 11, all who swear by God will glory in him. All who swear by God will glory in him, even in trouble. Even if we're facing severe suffering right now, we know our future. It's him. It's Jesus. He's guaranteed it with his death and burial and resurrection. We know that glory awaits us. How can we be discouraged if we remember that? I can't somehow get too discouraged when I think, if my enemies even wanted to kill me, they might be doing me a favor. Because I would be in the presence of my Savior in something that's way better than it is right now. We know glory awaits. Romans 8.18 Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. See, there's there's two words there, suffering and glory, and they're two concepts that kind of seem totally opposed to us on different planes. But Paul uses uh, them in a sense where they appear to be friends. They appear to coexist together. Two concepts that seem totally opposed to each other, yet here they're 
working together to create an end for us. It's in a paraphrase, I wrote, I have decided that the sufferings of the world, unworthy to compare with the glory to be revealed, I've really thought it through, and that's my biblical view. Have you, do you understand that sufferings can drive you to glory in God? Do you understand that trouble can drive us to God? If that is the most, if that's the outcome of those things, that's a glorious outcome. And we should never worry about that. We should rejoice in our future. How's your view of that? I hope this morning that I've tweaked it just a little bit so that your trouble doesn't seem as bad as the glory of God seems good. Are you convinced that you're going to heaven this morning? If so, you can rejoice in your future even if the present seems pretty rotten. And if so, you can rejoice and begin to reveal the glory of God even now in the midst of deep corruption and moral depravity. I don't know if you've noticed, but our world has this weird uh, relationship when it comes to trouble between, uh, I have a hard time pronouncing the word even, but reciprocity and escalation. And what that is, is if you hurt me, I'll hurt you more. And then I'll expect you to hurt me back, but I'll be ready to really deliver another blow that'll be way worse than what you did to me. And it'll give me the green light for even more retribution. And the cycle continues. I think what David demonstrates for us in Psalm 63, that as Christians, we reveal God's glory when we break that cycle. We don't strike out at Absalom. We don't strike out at the people who are chasing us. We, do, we, we reveal God's glory by not focusing on the offense or the trouble. We do that by doing what David did. He didn't go to avenge himself. Rather, he focused on God. He recalled his relationship with God. He worshiped God. He remembered what he knew, all that he knew about God. And he left the revenge up to God. We glorify him when we respond to persecution and hurt and trouble and discouragement by glorifying our Savior. I want to just leave you with this. When, when Christ is everything to us, when Jesus is everything to us, he's enough for us. When he's everything, he's enough. Let's pray. Father, you're an awesome God, and you are enough. I pray for the ones who might be going through trouble that they've never experienced before on this earth. And that you would help them to focus on you and bring glory to you in an amazing way, Lord. You're so good. You're so gracious. We'll sing on the battlefield. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.